Chatting with Sherry. Today we talk with best-selling author Jody Lynn Nye. She's an author of over 50 books, and she is a judge for the Writers of the Future contest. We talk about inspiration and writing, and our favorite books, and philosophy, and all kinds of stuff. Here's Jody. Hi, Jody. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm really uh, excited and interested in, to chat with you. Um, could you tell a little bit about yourself? As um, I know you're an author, um, but you know what you've done—just short term, but just a little information. Okay. Well, I have been a professional writer uh, full time since 1985. I've published over 50 books and over 170 short stories. My husband and I used to be the fiction reviewers for Galaxy's Edge magazine. I run the two-day writer's workshop at Dragon Cotton, which has which is finishing up today as we speak. <laughs> and I I am also a judge for the Writers of the Future contest. That is really cool. So how's Dragon Con going? Is it are you actually there in person? I mean, is it an uh, actual convention with people there and is everybody wearing masks? I mean, how's that working? <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. That, that wasn't possible. DragonCon last year had 85,000 people at it. So it wasn't, there was no way, when when the coordinators thought about it, they couldn't do it safely, even if they limited attendance, that would still be, to a quarter of the group, that would still be 20,000 people interacting. And there was no way that they wanted anybody, not one single attendee, to come to any kind of harm. Right. So what? So what they have done is prepared a virtual Dragon Con so that you could tune in on Facebook and YouTube and the DragonCon.org website and view panels that have been pre-recorded recently in the last three weeks along with classic panels and discussions and concerts and all manner of things that, that were recorded over the years. In fact, just yesterday I was watching one with my uh, now late co-author Anne McCaffrey and her son Todd talking about her books that was recorded 15 years ago. I was surprised when she alluded to how old she was, so I did a little math and realized it was from 2005. And I ran my writer's workshop live over Zoom, and that was that turned out actually pretty well. But I ran it on the same days that I would have if I was actually at the hotels. So that was kind of a normal thing. It turned out to be very convenient. Everybody could retreat to their own private potties when when nature called. <laughs> uh, have what they have what they wanted to uh, have lunch and not uh, not be in the midst of any crowds. But we had some really fine discussions. And while I miss I miss seeing everybody, 
one day it will be okay again and we'll have uh, the convention in person. But in the meantime, this was, I think, pretty well done. I think that's really interesting. It's, yeah, uh, I don't remember, was it Dragon, maybe it was Dragon Con, but Bill Shatner and uh, Henry Winkler, I, I, I caught that. I'd only caught the last 20 minutes of it, but they were doing yeah, virtual. Yeah, that would have been Dragon Con. Was it Dragon Con? Yeah, that was really interesting. That's what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they are, <laughs> they're so they're both intense, but they're intense in different ways. So it was really interesting to watch it on this format. <laughs> mm-hmm. If you ever watched the TV program, you would love this on NBC called Better Late Than Never. I, two of them are on. Yeah, I have. I've seen it. I just that's what I mean. It was a little different because it was. Mm-hmm. Because it wasn't, they weren't on an, an adventure. They were just talking, but it, right. but it was just there. They, they, you could tell. I think because of that show, they become really good friends because they they kind of understood each other really well. Mm-hmm. Sure. But yeah. Oh, did you hear? Uh, another person in that show was Terry Bradshaw. He got his own reality. He's wild. He's so I weird. This episode. He's wild. <laughs> He's so weird. <laughs> he like um, I don't remember uh, in one of the episodes he he dressed in drag for because of something I can't remember but it is like this huge six foot something guy. No offense to him but I think he would be a very ugly woman. He was. <laughs> He's a very good looking man but he was a very ugly woman. <laughs> yeah. So the features don't, just don't translate well. Well, I mean, I think Tony Curtis was one of the handsomest men in movies, but in some like it hot when he dressed like a woman, he was ugly. <laughs> I don't think he looked that bad. You don't? But, uh, no, no, I, I saw that movie. Mm-hmm. I saw some like it hot. What I, what I really appreciated was in To Wong Fu, uh, Patrick Swayze actually made a very beautiful woman. Oh, yeah. Well, he has he has softer looks. Mm-hmm. He does. He has he has uh, very gentle looks, his, and his eyelashes are really good. Yeah. Was I should say was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was such yeah. a good actor. I loved him. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he did. He was a pretty girl. Sure, <laughs> 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 his wife wouldn't have liked to hear that, but. <laughs> I don't know if it would bother her so much if she was married to an actor. She's seen him in, in drag before, I'm sure. That's true. That's true. Yeah, well, you never know. Some actors, I mean, some actors wouldn't do that. Like, um, there was a scene in White Christmas where uh, uh, Danny Kaye and Bing Crosby um, are supposed to pretend, be, pretend to be the girls, Rosemary Clooney and Vera Ellen. But Bing Crosby just he wouldn't do it. He, he Danny was all for it. He would he wanted to go all the way, wear the outfit and everything, but Bing wouldn't do it. All he would do is like put a little bit of their costume on. <laughs> that worked too. It was a it was a fun scene. It was. Yeah. But sometimes they just won't do it. Mm-hmm. I mean I guess it it's up to their sensitivity. Mm-hmm. But Danny would have gone all the way. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry he didn't get the chance. It would have been funny. It would have, because he was such a, he was, well, he was a great comedic actor, so. He, he, he was that. He was. He was so amazing. And so amazing, the people fr- uh, that learned in the Borscht Belt, like Danny Kay, Jerry Lewis, people like that, they, they never had lessons. They just were naturally gifted at everything. <laughs> hmm I read Danny Kay's uh, biography. When he worked in the Catskills, he was what they called a tumbler. He was sort of a a maitre d', a head counselor. He was to involve all of the people who were staying at the resort in activities and games. And he had the energy of a two-year-old, so he was able to <laughs> run up and down hills and get them involved in games, uh, teach them rowing, uh, get them in taking part in dance competitions and things. So he had to have quite an imagination and a big personality, which, of course, he we did. see that he did. Yeah. Yeah. Jerry Lewis, too. I think he did the same thing because he had the same kind of personality. And he was, like, second or third generation because his father was and his grandfather were both um, comedic uh, singers. So oh. he, he really actually was born on in you know, on a stage or something. I mean, well, not actually born on the stage, but he was born part of that world. So mm-hmm. that was natural. Oh, another person who's really good at the, uh, who never took a lesson was Sammy Davis Jr. Mm-hmm. And the, I what a um, marvelous singer. Oh, marvelous. That's just what I was gonna say. Uh, no insult to Dean Martin or Frank Sinatra, who I love both of them, but. Sammy had the best voice of anybody in that Rat Pack. I mean, he just had the most gorgeous voice. Uh-huh. Well, when don't say that to my mother-in-law. She is a diehard Frank Sinatra fan. I love Frank. I do. I just think uh, I heard both of them sing My Way, and I'm sorry, uh-huh. Sammy was better. <laughs> <laughs> He, it's, it's, he just had that gorgeous, deep voice, just like mm-hmm. just beautiful. And I mean, and he did so. And like I was, it was talking about, he could he could do anything, and he had no lessons. He just watched people backstage and just absorbed it. He could dance, he could sing, he could act, he could do impressions, he could he could do uh, gun tricks. He. Could <laughs> Wow. <laughs> yeah, he there um I think it was it was on a talk show he was on. I can't remember which one it was. I I like to watch old shows and um on Tubi the cable station they have a lot of old things. Maybe it was laughing. Mm-hmm. But he had this thing where he was like twirling the, No, it was on it was on the Lucy show. That's where it was. And he was doing, um, he was twirling the gun. And I I remember when I was a little girl watching it, asking my mom, she goes, oh, yeah, my, your dad and I saw his act. He was great at that. He could do the, he, he did a whole thing. He did a whole shtick with, um, with a gun. He could mm-hmm. do the whole cowboy thing, you know, twirl both guns out of his, um, out of the holsters, uh, do uh, flip them in the air, do all kinds of stuff. He he, he just brilliant. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. I never saw him do that. How cool! Isn't it? 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he did a really good John Wayne. <laughs> I guess everybody did John Wayne, though. <laughs> well, they both have very deep voices, so. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, but yeah, he did a he he did really good impersonations too. It just he was just mm-hmm. amazing. He's uh, you can tell I I've adored him my whole life. I saw him. Oh yeah. I saw him once in person at one of the Jerry Lewis telephones. Oh at, lucky you! Oh, he was amazing. Oh wow. He came out in the audience and he talked to us during the commercial breaks. I mean. Oh neat. Yeah. How very kind of him. He mm-hmm. he was. He was a really nice man, and um, another year I was on the phones, and I was, the phones were back on that. I always worked, when I was a kid, the, uh, during this telephone, I just loved it. I actually, when I was about 15, asked my dad and mom if I could do it, but I was too young. So when mm-hmm. I was 18, I was able to do it, and so I was, uh, one year I was in the telephone area, and I figured I wasn't going to meet any of the actors because we were pushed all the way. It was at uh, uh, Channel 11, KTTV, and it was pushed all the way back. And I figured, oh, well. So I just was doing my job. And all of a sudden, Sammy was sitting <laughs> next to me. Hi, oh, wow. how are you? <laughs> <laughs> wow, this sweetheart. <laughs> he did that to everybody because he felt sorry that they, we were all in the back like that. Mm-hmm. There were a couple people who um, came back. The late Dan Daly, he came back, and um, I, I don't know who he is. Yeah. Yeah, he was wonderful. Um, he was doing a show at the time. Oh, it was a mystery. He was a, I think he was an attorney or a judge or something. It was like on the Sunday night mystery movie, which I was a huge fan of, and. Mm-hmm. Um, I mentioned it to him when he was sitting uh, in the back to talk to us, and he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, one of the things I want to do is bring that up. Thank you for reminding me. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, but, yeah, people like that are just gems. Just, you just want to put them in a little box. <laughs> Because <laughs> not very many people are like that. So sweet and kind. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to ask you, um, you've been, you said you've been a professional writer, but uh, when did you start writing? Was it, did you start writing as a child or did you learn? Oh, all school? the way back. I was, t- I was telling stories to my family before I could write. And once I could write, I started writing my stories down, and I even made myself my own books out of my dad's office paper with his stapler. So I was not only a writer, I was my own publisher and my own illustrator. So, but, but to be honest, I, I hope these books do not any longer exist because I would really hate to go back and see what they were like. Aww, that's so sweet. I love it. Oh, I used to do stuff like that, too. I was like... My my dad used to call me his shy actress because uh, I used to put on shows in our backyard mm-hmm. when I was about I because I took dance class and stuff and and I used uh, I used to put on shows in the backyard but you take me anywhere outside of people I knew and all of a sudden I would just go behind this wall of shyness which. Mm-hmm. 
that's why one of the reasons they pushed me into my dance classes and stuff was to help me try to break out of that. <laughs> but yeah, and I used to I used to write stories and st the first one I remember was that uh, the teacher put a sentence up on the wall. I think I was about eight, maybe seven or eight. And they said to write a page, write a story that's about a page long. I was still writing about six pages when she told us to put our pen down. Okay. <laughs> or pencil, <laughs> it was pencil, sorry. Pencil down. And um, she looked at it, she says, my goodness, a little author in the making. I, and I was like, I didn't even know what that meant. <laughs> but what what was the first story that you remember writing down? Wow, that that would go back a very very long way. I'm not I'm not sure. I was writing stories for my brothers. I told them all all kinds of things. I talked about a a, a prince and his pet penguin and how they had adventures across across the world. Uh, I had an alien green cat. Ooh. Who was uh, was a main character? <laughs> so I love cats. I have always loved cats. So I write quite a lot of cat fiction. But that was probably the first one. That's adorable. I love it. Mm -hmm. I love yeah. cats too. I love. I actually, I'm one of those people who love both cats and dogs. I do not understand the controversy of that, but I do. I love both. <laughs> um. I, I, I like dogs as individuals, but remember, I come from Chicago, so oh. walking a dog at 5 o'clock in the morning on a Chicago winter, not my idea of a good time. No, I understand that, yeah. I was brought up in L.A., so it's a little bit different. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Very much. Um, so, the other question I usually ask authors is, who was your influence? What writers did you like when you were growing up? Mark, excuse me, <coughs> got a little tickle in my throat here. Let's see, Mark Twain, um, Eleanor, Eleanor Fargin, uh, Frances Hodgson Burnett, who wrote A Little Princess. Um, <coughs> I read a lot of Laura Lee Hope, the Bobsy Twins, when I was growing up because they were available. I still have that. I still have my Bobsy Twin book somewhere. <laughs> I do too because I don't throw books away. Yeah, me neither. And I, I'm not aware of too many other authors specifically because I just read everything that there was within reach. And I, as I started to recognize things, uh, I like Charles Dickens. I know a lot of people might cringe at that because they were made to read Charles Dickens in school. Mm. But I thought that he was a masterful writer. But I think Mark Twain was, was the initial important writer to me. And I did also read classics, other classics. But one of the strange things, maybe, is that my grandfather bought me comic books for the first time when I was four, and I became a lifelong comic fan. You got a, a great deal of good storytelling in, in the good comics, of course. Mm -hmm. And... I was a film major in school, and I, I put some of that down to having looked at comic books and actually be seeing them as storyboards. 
so you, you frame them, the action comes from that, the way that a story goes together. You start to see when the, the peril is introduced, uh, when, when you start to see how the characters interact. And you, as, uh, as a visual learner, I, I learn better when someone shows me how to do something than I do just reading instructions. So I think that it was a, also an education to, to see that happening. And I, I really have to say also that I was influenced by movies. My mother, before she had me, worked for a man named Charles Good, who was, at the time, the head of distribution for MGM Pictures. But after she left, he went to work for Buena Vista, and he distributed Disney movies. So all the time I was growing up, he would send us distributors' passes to see the new movies when they were coming out. Oh, cool. Yeah, it was a marvelous thing. So we would see the new Disney pictures as they appeared. And you imagine, if you will, the only the only child in the audience because everybody else owned movie theaters or, or movie chains. And first me, and then as my brothers came along, we were all invited to, to go in. They handed you goodie bags of things. I still have the score and some of the other things from Bedknobs and Broomsticks when oh, it came out because they movie. gave you all sorts of uh, wonderful little treasures. And I, I, so I, I learned a lot from Walt Disney as well. That's funny because I, um, I, I love I, my memories of going to Disney movies vary, but the ones I mm-hmm. remember really well was going in the back of my dad's station wagon to a drive-in movie theater. That's when you used to go drive into the movie theater, young people. Um, <laughs> yes, but they're coming back. I know. I heard about that. I'm really excited because I loved it when I was a little girl. Because you would, um, my mom, she didn't really like, she liked the popcorn from the theater, but she didn't really like the food. So she would make chicken and stuff, and she would bring a picnic basket, and we would have uh, we'd have the popcorn from the movie theater, but we would have chicken and uh, apple pie and all kinds of stuff that <laughs> was much more healthy um, as we're watching. And that's movies. something that you could do at a drive-in that you couldn't do at a regular theater. Exactly. That's what I, yeah, and then we were in our pajamas. We couldn't do that either. Yes. My my parents did, in fact, have us put on our pajamas because usually by the time the movie was over, it was well past our bedtime, mm-hmm. and we would be asleep anyhow. Yep. And Dad would uh, carry us both in, tuck us in, kiss us, and, and they kiss us, and that was our... But I I still remember. I, rem- I saw Jungle Book. I saw Bedknobs and Broomsticks that way. I saw Mary Poppins mm-hmm. that way. It just... It's a... Because it's extremely visual to me, and I'm a visual person too. Seeing it through the the car, the front of the car, the the windshield in the front, um, <laughs> my memory of it. <laughs> the huge screen. At one point, my dad had a convertible, so he just pulled the pulled the roof off, and we got a much better view than people who had to see it through the windshield. And then, when they were finally, I, I'm the eldest of four, when the, my last brother came along, of course we had to go in the station wagon, no question. Yeah, but, so. it, but it was okay, because we were laying down anyway, so we could see it perfectly. Yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> I guess that's true. And my dad used to back the car up and put the mm-hmm. things in the front and and back the car up so that way we would and open up the back thing 
unless it was winter. Um, and that way we had a really good view of it. Uh, it, it depended on the movie, because some movies it didn't matter. You could watch it normal, but if it was a, one of those, like, back then they used to have widescreen movies, and um, seeing it in a movie theater widescreen, he wanted us to get the whole effect of it. So mm -hmm. he would open up the back so you could get a better view of the bottom and the top than you would in the back of the car. But, yeah, it, it, it's, it's funny because your parents want you to have a really good experience. And so mm -hmm. they'll do things to make sure that you did. <laughs> <laughs> well, they also wanted to make it easy on themselves because cranky kids do not make for a peaceful movie experience. True, true. But I wasn't realizing that at that age. <laughs> um, the only Disney movie I can remember seeing in the theater was Cinderella, and I think they took us to see it in the theater because I was sick. <laughs> I had just oh. got, I, I had just got over um, I, I wasn't contagious anymore, and I had just got over I think it was the, the chicken pox or something like that. And I was sick, so they wanted me in the inside. They didn't want to take us outside for that. That was the only movie, Disney movie, I can remember inside was Cinderella. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, I I think that one of the things I find really interesting are the uh, storyboards. I didn't even really understand what they were until I was older. I worked at Universal Studios on the tour, and mm -hmm, it was really fun. And um, one of the stations for the employees was next to the place where the guy who drew Popeye was. And um, he actually had all his storyboards on display, and uh, we could come in as long as we didn't bring any kind of drinks or anything like that. And I was my first real exposure. I was about 15. No, 16. I was 16. Um, and I, I thought it was fascinating. I, I was the only one, you could tell, I would be an interviewer later in life, only one asking him question after question after question. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, then I wanted to be an actor. So <laughs> to me, that was, it was like, this is really cool. <laughs> Until you start to talk to actors and how hard they have to work to get a career. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. Well, I I was a card carrying actor. I did work in uh, TV and film, so and theater. Yeah. But you, when you start having to earn a living and you can't live, you're not living at home anymore. You're out of college and you you have your own. You're starting your own life. It's really hard to be an actor. <laughs> My late brother-in-law was of the great cadre of actor, waiters, uh, songwriters, piano players, and yeah, we we contributed a great deal to the arts because we were helping support him in his dream. Yeah, until I was in my mid-twenties, I pretty much lived at home, and um, but I mean, you know, I was working, but I was working uh, like at uh, department stores, and I was. Like, I worked at a candy store inside a department store, and I was the manager. So I wrote the schedule. 
So if I had an audition or if I was going to work, I just had to tell my supervising manager, hey, I got a gig, can we work it out? And I would take get the time off. You can't really do that if you start working in an office, which is what I did later. And so that got blown. <laughs> but I loved it while it uh, while I was doing it. I had some good stuff. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Um so now can you tell us a little bit about your own books? What what was your first one? How did you uh, get published? I have a lot of new writers out there who like to hear their the origin of their publishing authors publishing stories. Well, there's there's a little bit of a, a tale to get to the first novel novel because the first things that I published were technical articles for a magazine called Video Action uh, here in Chicago, edited by a guy called Mike Stein. And I was working for a television station at the time here in Chicago. I was the technical operations manager. He wanted an update on the kind of uh, scrambled signal broadcast that we did in the afternoons, so I first wrote an article for him on that, and then he asked me to start reviewing equipment. And in exchange for my articles, sometimes I would get money, but sometimes I would get to keep the equipment that he had me review, because naturally he didn't have any use for it. So in that fashion, I acquired a switcher, a nice camera, uh, and, and various other little pieces of technical gear. After that, I was doing a little bit of freelance things here and there. I was in the Society for Creative Anachronism and writing columns for the Kingdom Newsletter, which I eventually started editing. But I, I met a man named Bill Fawcett, who was later uh, my fiancé and then my husband, who owned a company called Mayfair Games. And Mayfair hired me to start writing modules for uh, use with advanced Dungeons and Dragons, which were called Roll Aids, and also for the Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine game. I, I wrote the Nick Velvet uh, supplement. And <laughs> so when Bill came up with a project for Tor Books called Crossroads, which were choose your own adventures except set in licensed worlds like Anne McCaffrey's Pern, Roger Zelasny's La Amber, and so on, uh, he brought me into the project because I knew both game materials and how to write. So my first, let's see, I wrote four Choose Your Own Adventures for him for the Crossroads series. The first one was published in 1987. And my first short story came out a year later, but my first independent novel came out because uh, having having written those those choose your own adventure books, my style became known, and I talked to an editor at a science fiction convention, and I proposed a series of books, and he bought them. So my first novel came out in 1990, uh, alongside in, in collaboration with Anne McCaffrey. In fact, that was my first science fiction novel. The collaboration came out within a month of my first fantasy novel, which I wrote by myself. So it was a little labyrinthine to get there, but that's, uh, that's where everything is. What I would say to beginning writers is never say no to an opportunity. If I hadn't been writing game materials, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to write game fiction. And if I had not been writing game fiction, I would not have had the opportunity that I did to publish uh, my own novels. That is interesting, too, because that's an interesting path. 
actually remember those uh, choose your own paths uh, mm-hmm. stories. Even though I was too old, really, to be. I love murder mysteries, and I was probably too old to be doing it. But I I used to get those. I used to have a lot. I. You, when you're like sitting at lunch and you have nothing to do and you have to be quiet because you're in a place where it's very uh, you're very close to where the customers are uh, those things are perfect <laughs> yes the trouble is that uh, those were published immediately before Nintendo came out and once Nintendo happened Choose Your Own Adventures became passe so they were gone it's a good thing that we got as many out done as we did. I think they were fun. They were a lot of fun, and it was really easy. They were to, fun. To take but how, in. How could they possibly compare with a a, uh, a console game? That's true. That's true. And I remember uh, I was a um, I was working at an insurance company, and all the kids used to be around. I was the oldest person there. And all the kids used to be around me, and they'd be pl- they uh, on their breaks they'd be playing on those things, and I was like, "Oh my God, nobody reads books anymore." <laughs> I was the only one reading a book <laughs> on the break. <laughs> but yeah, well, you know that's the way it is. But it just I was like, "Where? No, I feel lonely. Nobody else is reading a book." <laughs> you had your book. You, that that was your company. No, no, I felt lonely that I was the only one reading a book. Oh. No, nobody oh. else was reading a book. I was like... It's a shame. They didn't know what they were missing. Maybe they do now. I hope so. I actually did something kind of sneaky. Um, what was that? Well, when the holidays came, I knew these people really well. I knew what they liked. I knew what their Nintendo games were, and I, I knew what their passions were. So I got them books. I bought books that would fit each of their personalities, passions, interests, <laughs> and I gave them the books. Mm-hmm. And they all read them. <laughs> well, good. Like this one guy was a fanatic for baseball, so I gave gave him a book that was a novel, but it was about baseball. Mm-hmm. And he just he ate it up. He actually ended up buying another one that was the sequel. I was like. I loved it. And then there was another girl who was uh, interested in romance, and she, like, like did romance novels and watched romance movies. So I gave her, uh, and she was, like, one of those matchmaker kind of people. So I gave her uh, Emma. I gave her Emma. <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> it was perfect. That works. So that's what I did. It was a little sneaky, but at least I got them reading. <laughs> I, I think that's terrific. Even if it's only that one book, it was better than not them not ever reading a novel. <laughs> if she if she liked it, she knows where the rest of Jane Austen is. That's right. I I don't know because she left our department. I I know she finished the book because she uh, sent me an email saying she loved it and going into detail. So I know she read it. Um, but. And then and then she says, and did you know that there was a movie of it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, dear, we do. <laughs> That's what I said. <laughs> of course I knew there was a movie of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but isn't that funny? I mean, it, it, it just, yeah. it, it was like, uh, it was, 
new to them. They had no idea that books could be so interesting. Oh, it, absolutely. It, they're, they're, it's, it's funny when you're dealing with extremely young people, they... My, my nephew, when, I, when uh, he first started telling jokes, he was very young, and he was somewhere, somewhere between three and six, Aww. and he was so disappointed that I had heard the jokes that he was telling me. Well, I'd heard them when I was between three and six. Uh-huh. So, yes. Unfortunately, they don't think that anything existed before they did. Before they did, yep. The world started the day they were born. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, that's fine. But it just—it's the growing path. But it's just—it's just funny. Uh, it's just it's, like it's cute. It is. It's a cutie thing. You know, it's just like yeah. aww. You know, just—it is. But you—it that was my sneaky way of uh, spreading the the book worm bug. <laughs> um. So. How did you become involved with Writers of the Future? Well, because of what I do, uh, they had been interested in me as as a writer, as as a potential judge for, for some time. And I finally had the opportunity to give the time to the contest. And it's been a lot of fun. It turns out that quite a number of my friends and, and some of my friends who have, are no longer with us have been judges for years. So it, it becomes a family reunion when we get together at the event. I get to spend a lot of time with people I really like and get to know some up-and-coming young writers who show so much promise. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, we we're, this year, of course, because of the pandemic, um, the uh, Writers of the Future, not just the award, but the the workshop and all that stuff where you get to meet your your friends who are fellow judges. It's not happening this year. So what well, did you guys do? Well, it's it's going to be held next year. Uh, what, what mostly we've done is sort of commiserate online and, and via email, saying we wish that we could have gotten together in April when we normally do. What is going to happen instead is that the winners of this year are going to attend the gala next year when the season 37 uh, winners are going to be announced and it will all be one theme usually the events have a, a, a theme the first year I was there there was a splendid dragon that, that was all over the, the, the set it was well life sized and the next year there was this massive robot uh, and last year it was uh Oh, no, last year was the robot, because this year it was going to be this, this absolutely beautiful woman uh, who is a, a priestess and the phoenix that's just hatched out of an egg uh, with her. So what's going to happen, uh, Echo Chernick, who is the, the organizing judge for the illustrators of the future, she did the cover of uh, volume 36. And when I heard that she was going to be doing that, I, I went to the coordinator, the, the publisher of Galaxy Press, and I said, a little birdie told me that Echo's going, going to be doing the art. I would really love to be able to do the, the story that goes with it, because I admire her work so much, and she is just a fantastic artist as well as a fantastic teacher. And they said I could. So uh, there's a beautiful, beautiful piece of art 
on volume 36 of the Writers of the Future anthology. You can look it up on Amazon. What Echo had in mind because of the delay of the gala is to connect the volume 37 to volume 36 thematically so that the phoenixes will be back and Echo is doing a new cover for it, which is splendid. I, I can't wait to see the finished version of it. And I will be writing a companion story to go with it. Cool. And that means that these 37 right winners will not feel as if they are sort of being forgotten. It's just going to be one big party. And I think that's such a good idea. They, In past years, they have been given such a wonderful opportunity to participate in the workshop that they do I you I think have you talked to David you must have talked to David Farland or no, yeah. Powers yep. the, who are the coordinating judges for the seminar but all of the rest of us attending judges do also talk to these students and we make ourselves available to them not only to do talks with them but to be available as a resource to them afterwards because it's a big wide world out there for young writers and to have some people who have experienced so many things were able to give them advice or just be a listening ear. They can bounce things off us. We'll introduce them to agents. No guarantee that the agent will take them. We can introduce them to editors. No guarantee that the editors will take them. But at least then they are faces uh, connected with the names. And that makes a big difference to young people. I was given some splendid opportunities when I got started partly because of my work with Anne McCaffrey, because she was incredibly encouraging to young writers as well. And naturally, I want to give back. I want to be able to do this for young writers as, as it was done for me. Um, so people can find it. Can you give the full name of the book? Writers of the Future, Volume 36 is the current one. It has, in fact, been going for 37 years. It was founded by L. Ron Hubbard, and it is paid for by the royalties from his books, which continue to be published, or uh, re-edited and brought back. A really exciting thing happened a couple of years ago. Somebody discovered one of his books that had never actually been published. It had been talked about in the, the various magazines that he published in, but it never hit print. So it has now become made available, and I think that's tremendously interesting. I was talking to a scholar of his work, somebody who has collected everything that he ever wrote, and they were so hugely excited to discover that not only has the book been found, but it's going to come out. And those uh, those royalties, those books, pay for the Writers of the Future contest, pay for the gala, pay for the, the, the winners to be flown in from all over the world. We've had winners from Tanzania, we've had winners from Turkey, Great Britain, Australia, um, illustrator winners from uh, Eastern Europe. The, in fact, the youngest winner that they ever had was, I think, 17 or 18 years old. He was a young man from, I, I apologize to him, I can't remember which country he's from, somewhere in Eastern Europe. This was a, a huge deal for him. It was a wonderful experience. And we've had uh, writer guests, writer winners as old as 70. So it, it spans the age, the entire age range. It's, it's a fantastic thing. And they're so enthusiastic about the opportunity. 
I'm, I'm really glad to see them getting recognized for their talent. I think it's great. Um, we don't have a lot of time. Do you have any website, and what is the social media that you're on? I mostly am on Facebook, Jody Lynn Nye. It's divided into Jody Lynn, that's two N's in Lynn, and then dot Nye. You'll be able to find me that way, or just, just do a search. I have a website, but it is currently re being revamped by my webmaster. Now that uh, everybody's on hiatus from from uh, going to conventions and things, I have the opportunity to sort of clean it up a bit and modernize it. But I I am on Facebook quite a bit, so stop by and uh, friend me, and we'll have a conversation. Great. Uh, are you on like Instagram or Twitter? Not yet. Oh, I I tweet once in a while, but mostly Facebook. Okay. I I intend to get on Instagram. Now that I'm done with Dragon Con, which is uh, one of the best things that I do all year, I, I have the opportunity to take time for more things, and everyone keeps saying, you should get on Instagram, so I will. Well, you're a visual person, so you would like it. <laughs> it's sort of a combo. It's like Facebook, but uh, more young people are on Instagram, so, and you like young people, so you probably would like that. I, uh, sounds like fun. <laughs> Um, I want to thank you for taking the time out to being on my show. I know you're busy with Dragon Con. I really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much for having me. I do appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Thank you. And thank you for chatting with Sherry. place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office more than once actually do i have to say yes you do in the car before my kids pta meeting really yes excuse me what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky i never win and tell well there you have it you could get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com play for free right now are you feeling lucky no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details